you're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm your host, Alexandra Fernandez, and with me today in our virtual studio, I have Dr. Rupa Patel and Dr. Tess Clifford. They are joining me today to discuss a petition that was started in the last month or so for the Ontario government to consider regional reopenings for schools due to several factors, and we're going to talk a little bit about this today. So let's welcome Dr. Rupa and Dr. Tess onto CFRC 101.9 FM. How are you both doing today? Today. Um, uh, good, thanks. So thank you. do you mind just introducing yourselves for us, please telling us a little bit about your experience in your career? Um, so uh, my name is Rupa Patel. I'm a family physician in Kingston. I've been a family doctor for 25 years and I work at the Kingston Community Health Centre um, seeing people of all ages from uh, birth to, uh, to sort of the elderly. And I, okay, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Tess Clifford. I'm a psychologist and the director of the psychology clinic at Queen's. Uh, it's a training clinic for graduate students who are learning to be psychologists. And uh, in that role, I provide service mostly to children and youth in the Kingston community, um, including uh, contracted services with children's mental health agencies here in town and family and children's services. Um, yeah, happy to talk more. Awesome. Um, so, like I mentioned earlier, a few weeks ago, um, in an article in CTV, there was um, an article stating that a petition was circling around, calling on the Ford government to consider a regional approach to reopening the province in which different health units, um, specifically ones with less cases, can open up schools. So can you explain to our listeners the main reason for as to why this petition was going around and why it was started? Uh, so a group of healthcare providers, uh, local healthcare providers in Kingston, um, got together because we were all concerned about the impacts of school closures on the well-being of children, youth, and their families, and particularly in um, regions with low case rates. Uh, the evidence is pretty clear that the risk of COVID, tra COVID transmission in schools is quite low, and so we wanted to address that. Um, you know, the harms caused by those school closures are pretty significant, uh, especially whenever there's not uh, as much need for, for the school closure from a, a COVID prevention or mitigation perspective. Mm -hmm. the, that regional school closure idea versus the blanket school closure across the province is the, the debate and it's, it seems to me that the blanket school closure doesn't, doesn't really prioritize them, the needs of the children, both the physical health needs and the mental health needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in terms of that, you know, because um, physical health, mental health has definitely taken a toll because of the pandemic, especially in youth. Um, you know, as doctors, what patterns have you been noticing in youth when it comes to their mental health and physical health concerns because of virtual learning? I mean, I can I can tell you some stories of some some kids I've seen who have really struggled with the virtual learning. Um, many of my, many in my practice will have. Uh, issues with access because of, you know, not having data not being in a home where it's easy to have your own space to get online, not having that sort of support with a, a good computer or something that, you know, that they, they have access to all the time. And so they're just like, there are these 
logistical issues that many families face to access online learning. That's one thing. Um, and then if you're, you know, if you're not engaged, then, you know, you're as a child, many times you're just like feeling left out. You're roaming around. I've got one particular teenager who I'm thinking of who really struggled with the online and he has gotten into trouble um, and, you know, leaving the house, staying out all night. Like he's just, he's just gotten into a bunch of unhealthy habits and, and feeling lousy too about, about himself and what he's up to because he doesn't have like a structure or the school to go to or seeing friends. And it's, it's, it's like school is really the bedrock of a kid's world. And when you take that away um, and not replace it with anything as stable or supportive, it, it's, it's really hard for, for kids. Um, I, I have, I've seen a lot of the same concerns and I think about things in, in two ways, Alexandra. I think about the clinical population. So the kids that are referred to me wondering about whether they have a diagnosis of a mental health condition that explains their struggles. They also think about just our duties to protect kids' well-being in general. And so those kids that aren't being referred but are really struggling. And so I, we know from lots of years of research on the impacts of chronic stress and trauma on, on children and youth that um, there are specific things that can support us through experiences of chronic stress and certainly we would all acknowledge that living through a pandemic a global pandemic is a chronic stress and um, that even though you know kids are sometimes having fun and playing that doesn't mean they're not affected mm -hmm. um, but some of the basic things that support us through those times is having connections with people who care about us including our peers being able to play and interact with others um, having routine and um, predictability in our days and having a sense of meaning. And that's, as Rupa said, that's, those are the things that school provides for most kids. And uh, for, you know, most kids who would have been okay um, making it through this crisis, uh, having school removed means their families need to figure out a way to, to replace all of those things. And many families can't. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's not an easy thing to, to, to build up those connections and routines and um, give a sense of meaning in your days. Th those are hard things to do, when, especially when parents are struggling with the, the uncertainty of living in a pandemic themselves. Um, yeah, and uh, we all have different resources. I also, um, you know, just to share about some of the clinical concerns I've seen, I see we've seen a lot of referrals for children and youth with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that looks like, um, you know, physical complaints like headaches or tummy aches or frequent urination are some of the things we've been seeing. And sometimes it looks like big behavioral outbursts or shutting down and not talking to anyone. Uh, it can look like lots of different things, but families are, especially in this latest closure in this, uh, in this one over the spring, families are really finding that they're having a difficult time supporting their kids through that. And I think most of us are getting pretty tired of it. So it's not surprising kids are too. They're really having a tough time. Mm -hmm, definitely. And I know that there's been, um, there has been a lot of talk since the beginning of the pandemic, like an increase in um, mental health illnesses and diagnosis and stuff like that. And I was just wondering, like, honestly, just what are your 
thoughts on this pandemic kind of bringing up these um, mental illnesses and these diagnoses um, from your perspectives as doctors? Yeah. Can you just elaborate a little bit more to that? Yeah, I'm happy to speak a bit to it. I think we're, we're only going to understand the impacts in years to come um, as we're able to collect better data about it. Um, and so right now, most of us are speaking from our kind of anecdotal experiences and also the data we have about referrals, how many people are contacting us looking for support, which are really high compared to what they had been before the pandemic. Um, I know from talking to colleagues and from my own experience that there seems to be both people who um, maybe had difficulties that were well supported uh, before the pandemic and weren't causing a lot of impairment, where with the pandemic they've lost those supports and then the impairments become more significant. And, um, and then those people are end up, and, or those children are ending up getting diagnosed with um, just different neurodevelopmental conditions like autism is one that we're finding a lot uh, mm -hmm. is being identified lately as supports are being removed. Um, but also, I think there are people who are just the the level of uncertainty as you as you shared, Alexandra, like living through this level of uncertainty and unpredictability uh, is it's easy to develop significant anxiety and for that to become, uh, you know, just a, a real difficulty and lead to mm -hmm. real impairments in your day to day and to need a lot of support with building new coping skills, especially when we've had coping skills that were effective before and we don't have access to them now. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, like some, some of that anxiety is understandable and almost normal as a, as a coping for this time. Um, but then, but we've taken away all the, the sort of protective factors that people had before or, or can develop now, like taking away the outdoor playground or outdoor, um, you know, recreation was a real was really troubling for me um, because that is actually a protective uh, factor for people. You know, getting outside, going for a walk, mm -hmm. that can really mitigate people's anxiety and improve their mental health. And so, some of the decision making has really been, I think, hard to to follow um, because when you think about outdoor transmission of COVID, it is it is likely negligible and yet, you know, there is this mandate for everybody to be inside and, yeah. and not access that. So, so some of the decision-making is just so contrary and it seems like, okay, like the idea of people's mental wellness is this taken into consideration and then, and then are the, and then the kids who have even higher sort of um, like they've had a higher impact over the pandemic. Like they don't, they, they've been in school and off and all their sports have been removed or arts and, you know, getting together with friends, like their lives have changed significantly mm -hmm. uh, compared to most adults. Like, I think even, even a kid with the most protective factors in a, like a high functioning family is, is having some difficulty with the isolation and the, you know, inability to, to get out with, friends and a crowd and access sports and activities and recreation. Like it's, it's hard for everyone across the board, every kid. Mm -hmm. Definitely for sure. Um, and, you know, I know this um, petition was started um, a while ago, but now it's, you know, kind of like nearing the end of May and um, there's about a month of, 
a month left of school, um, but there are still calls for schools to reopen and these petitions and stuff. And I know that um, I was recently reading something yesterday in the news. I think they're still waiting to make a decision as to whether schools or will schools will reopen or not in the next um, for the next month. And I guess my question is, um, with only such a short amount of time left, um, I guess what's the purpose um, in doing that? Is will there still be a positive impact? Um, do you think despite schools only being opening for, I guess, another three, four weeks, if that too? Yes, I, I feel really strongly that there would be yeah, a positive impact for kids. Yeah, they, the, the signaling to kids that um, the world is safe enough for you to be back at school is huge. Um, mm -hmm. That means a lot to them, as well as the opportunity to have closure on those relationships, to gather together again, to have fun, to have some weeks of fun. Um, you know, June is notoriously the funnest time at school, right? Report yes. <laughs> and you just get to, you know, do art projects and play outside together and reconnect and just celebrate that. And I think kids need that more than anything right now is just to have play and together time and feel connected with the community. And I think it will signal a lot to them going into the summer, having had that rather than just fading out of virtual school and into a summer which is not going to be a normal summer for them again mm -hmm. um, yeah so I think it really matters even a week uh, every day counts for kids I totally totally agree and I think the parents also I mean it, it's not easy being with your kids all day long all night long every single day like uh, you know it it's tiresome for both. So just a bit of separation before the summer holiday would be great for it for everyone as again. And, you know, it would be easier to take the school closure issue if it made sense. Um, but we know that the transmission rates are less in schools than they are in the community. And, you know, our numbers are certainly going down and people are getting vaccinated, like we're over 50% vaccination rates in adults. So there's just so many factors that make it seem like completely reasonable um, to get back to school like next week. So, uh, if, you know, it just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for students and youth who are struggling with their mental health and their motivation or even their physical health as well during this um, time of virtual learning, are there any resources or tips or tricks that you could um, recommend and stuff um, just for anyone truly listening, um, things that they can check out um, for themselves, for their kids, um, family members, friends, anything like that? My biggest recommendation is to really evaluate what expectations are reasonable for your children and your family. And so a lot of families are at the point where they've decided virtual school isn't a reasonable expectation for us right now. It's not something we can participate in and still be well. And I think that's an okay decision to make that if this isn't working for you, if you're if it's causing more stress, that's okay to, to choose not to participate right now and to trust that your child's learning will work out. And right now they're learning how to cope through a crisis and how to, how to help themselves through that. So I, I do encourage families to pay attention to the signs they have from their kids about what they need right now. I think everybody does well with getting time outside time to play and um, interactions with peers. So 
now that that's uh, allowed in some ways, I, I would encourage people to do that and to, to focus on rebuilding those connections with outdoor play. Yeah, we talk, we talk at my clinic about the sort of core curriculum for mental wellness and, and it, like I'm a big believer in routine actually and rituals, getting enough sleep, eating well, you know, healthy nutrition, not processed food all the time, every meal. Um, and uh, outdoor activity or some kind of exercise activity is that kind of like these routines can can mitigate a lot of the the anxiety and mood issues that people have. And so just kind of really reinforcing the need for that kind of structure in one's life and, you know, from like a five-year-old on. Because those are lifelong habits you want to create, right? To help um, cope with stress along your lifespan. Yeah, for sure. And like, once you start them to like, even, you know, starting them at the young age may seem a little bit, um, maybe not ideal for a lot of people. Yes. But you know, when you continue that practice and um, definitely like it helps you overall in the end, for sure. Um, is there anything that um, either of you would like to add before we end off? I don't think so. Do you, Rupa? No, no. I, I mean, I think we should try to get schools open next week. <laughs> I really think it's reasonable. So, yeah. it's a, yeah. I, well, I, I mean, I think that many of us from our group think that schools should have been open a month ago, actually, maybe not even closed at all. So, yeah, um, yeah it's uh, it's frustrating I, to, my, to feel like decisions are being made without considering all the implications, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. My husband met a patient from Port Hope and they have had no COVID cases. And this person was talking about how ridiculous it was for their schools to be closed. You know, it's, it's just like this regional approach to school openings and closures is, is, is really the only way to go. And I don't, I don't think it's ethical almost not to do that. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it must be so hard for students as well. Like I could only imagine like bouncing back constantly from virtual to in-person to hybrid or whatever. Like for me, obviously like doing university, like it's just been virtual the whole time. It's not that bounce back. And um, I imagine even now is like in my early twenties, that would be really hard for me. I can't even imagine, let alone being like 10 or like 15 or something, trying to adapt constantly and be flexible. Um, yeah. yeah, we're asking a lot. We're asking a lot of kids. Yeah. Yes, we are asking a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, Thank and you for doing this, Alexandra. Yes, of course. Um, it's such an important issue and um, something that I definitely love to get the word out. Um, just a question that sprung to mind. Um, what were kind of like the steps that happened with the petition? Like, is it still circling around? Was it sent to um, public health here or the Ford government even? Um, can you just outline what's kind of happened in the last few weeks with that? Yeah, it has cir circled around and then uh, it's been sent to the Ford government and cabinet members uh, a couple of times. And um, recently we contacted all of the people who've signed the petition asking them to write their own letters to um, to the government, especially in response to this statement that he, that Ford made last week about there not being consensus about whether schools should reopen, just really yeah. sharing that there is very clear consensus that schools should be open and a very few number of people who disagree with that. And so mm -hmm. 
I'm really hoping that people will continue to share that message. And I am hopeful we'll have a decision this week that will support regional school openings very soon. I know, because then what's our next step, Tess? <laughs> <laughs> our next step as a group is going to be planning for, for fall, too, and to make sure that kids aren't forgotten in policy level decisions. Yeah, about uh, yeah. and that's been a real problem, I think, this year, and, and that needs to change. And you can really see the contrast across the province. Like, I know BC hasn't closed schools, and mm -hmm. I think they have had a bit more awareness of school issues and, and mental health issues of kids and like it has to be just higher on the priority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, yeah. yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, I really appreciated both of you for um, spending the time to talk with me about this and answer my questions. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. We're back and you're listening to The Scoop on CFRC 101.9 FM. We folks hope that you've been having a great day so far and that you really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Rupa and Dr. Tess about reopening schools in different regions in Ontario. The call that the health medical officers have made in the Kingston area and also probably in other areas in Ontario as well. Just a few news updates for you folks. Um, some good news is that Kingston Frontenac Public Library users can now borrow Chromebooks as part of the library's technology and device lending program. KFPL is offering 10 Chromebooks supported by the Cameron and Laurie Thompson Fund with the Community Foundation of Kingston and Area. Community connectedness is an important part of our mission to make a positive difference in the lives of everyone in Kingston and Frontenac, said Nicole Charles, who's the Director of Branch Experience at KFPL. Access to these Chromebooks will help our patrons get online to complete essential activities and enjoy digital opportunities like virtual library programming. It's another step forward improved computer access within our communities. Chromebooks are fast, lightweight laptops, perfect for browsing the internet, word processing, and video conferencing. They are designed for users to do most of their work online with files saved to cloud-based user accounts. The Chromebooks will be available to teen and adult cardholders in good standing with a verified address. The one-week loan period is renewable if there are no other holds on the devices. Customers will return the Chromebooks to a KFL KFPL branch or a curbside table and staff will sanitize and prepare them between users. The addition of Chromebook builds on KFPL's popular wireless internet hotspot lending program, which was announced in October 2020. The library has 15 wireless internet hotspots available for loan, also supported by the Cameron and Laurie Thompson Fund. For more information, you can go to www.kfpl.ca or you can call your local branch. But This is a great initiative and kind of on the topic of what we were talking about before with Dr. Rupa and Dr. Tess, this is a great way to connect with people, to do virtual programming, um, um, and just um, making a difference positively and using technology, giving people that access and opportunity to technology during these difficult times. Well, thank you so much for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM, everyone, and for tuning into The Scoop. We hope that this was an informative segment for you. Don't forget to follow us at CFRC Radio on Instagram, at CFRC on Twitter, and check out our Facebook page to keep up to date with all of our awesome programming. But thank you so much. I hope that you have a lovely rest of your Thursday, that you um, enjoy the weather that we have coming up this weekend, and don't go anywhere because we have Democracy Now! coming up next. But before that, let's turn to our traffic report for the week. Thanks so much. You're listening to CFRC 101.9.
Thank you for listening to The Scoop, produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at CFRC 101.9 FM at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples.